Hello and welcome to Close Talking. I am Jack Rossiter Munley. For today's special episode, rather than examine a poem, I want to take on a subject that is as near and dear to my heart as it is an odd fit for a poetry podcast. National security. I have a simple proposition that I want to explore. Poetry is good for national security. Poets and poetry are not often given much consideration when it comes to quote-unquote hard topics like political strategy and national security. On the West Wing, for example, every liberal's favorite government fantasy, there is an almost perfect portrayal of all the different negative stereotypes of poets and poetry. They come in the season three episode, The U.S. Poet Laureate. In this episode, the Poet Laureate, played by Laura Dern, is in turn either overly emotional, impractical, or ineffective at advocating for her political positions. Toby, a character for the record whom I love, our West Wing staffer, politely educates her on the way that the real world of politics works, bursting her idealistic, emotionally motivated poetic bubble. The truth is, poetry, soft as it may be, has a lot to offer. The political scientist Joseph S. Nye Jr. writes about the different kinds of power that operate in the world. For him, there's hard power, a nation's military might, and there's also soft power, a nation's cultural influence. The current president's proposed budget, which includes funding cuts to the arts, entitlement programs, and the State Department, while simultaneously calling for increases in military spending, was described by its supporters within the administration as a hard power budget. When thinking about national security, this kind of budget makes intuitive sense. This Outlook makes intuitive sense. If our nation is going to be at war, we better have the biggest military with the best weapons. This proposition is irrefutable. Similarly, if we want to prevent war, isn't it better that our military should be so fearsome that other nations tremble at the thought of engaging us in conventional warfare? First of all, no. We already spend nearly two and a half times more on defense than any other country on the planet. That reality aside, any increases in defense spending should be strategically motivated, not for show. Second, this kind of planning fails to take the end goal, national security, into account. Is the nation more secure when it's in a military conflict with an adversary? No. The nation is safer when a core of dedicated civil servants work to prevent armed conflict from occurring. The kind of civil servants, incidentally, who work at the State Department, whose funding is being cut. Similarly, when a nation focuses on increasing soft power, what they actually increase is their desirability. If countries around the world admire your nation's culture, admire the poems your poets write, admire the films that your filmmakers make. 
They want to be like you, and they are less likely to engage you in military conflict. That makes your nation more secure. But more than a focus on soft power, more than the desirability that great cultural works can create, the real boost to national security that poetry offers comes from the way in which poetry facilitates reader and listener engagement. So take, for example, this poem from Emily Dickinson. It's going to be discussed on an upcoming Close Talking podcast, so stay tuned for that too. It's called To Make a Prairie. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. One clover and a bee. And reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. Now, in this poem, Emily Dickinson breaks down a prairie into its elemental forms. All you need for a prairie as vast as the Great Plains is a flower and something to spread its pollen. A whole expansive field is condensed into its embryonic components. But the poem goes further. It uses the prairie as a stand-in for any large, boundless desire or goal. Maybe it seems impossible for you, one tiny person with small, meager tools to accomplish great deeds. But, the poem says, if you have desire, if you have within you that reverie, you too can attain even your loftiest goals. You too can make your personal prairie. Now, the poem does not at any point explicitly state this message. All the reader is actually given is a collection of contradictory, declarative statements about what makes a prairie. Poetry as a form, however, cues the reader to be inherently active in a way that almost no other art form does. What makes a poem a poem rather than just a narrative story is all of the blank spaces that are left in. Of course, there are impressionistically written stories and narratively clear poems, but the reason to use poetry to convey an emotional or intellectual point is to play with language in a way that other types of writing simply do not allow. Emily Dickinson, in her poetry, was famous for using strange line breaks and invented punctuation to try and most accurately convey the way her work should be read. She wanted to use every tool at her disposal to bring the words as she heard them in her head to her readers. The precision with which she rendered her vision is part of what makes her work so endlessly fascinating. I, as a reader, am always looking harder at each comma, period, and dash. I wonder why she broke her line in the middle of a sentence, and, in the case of To Make a Prairie, why, in the space of such a short poem, does she give so many different answers to the simple implied question of what makes a prairie? There's a reason that Emily Dickinson wrote poetry rather than essays or novels. 
An essay can impart information and make a compelling argument. A story can take a reader on an emotional journey. A poem, by necessity, is almost an invitation. The poet has a message, one that can only be divined by some level of deeper engagement with the text. Again, this is true to some degree of all written work of greater complexity, but with poetry, there are so many more stylistic and literary tools at the artist's disposal, and usually also in play in the artist's work, that there is an a priori level of complexity. Some poems wear their meaning on their sleeve, others bury it deep beneath layers of literary technique and reference. But all poems are to some degree mysterious. Look at Emily Dickinson's poem. She never explicitly states her subject. The question that she's answering is never mentioned, and the answers she gives are, at the very least, elliptical and could easily be described as misleading. By presenting her work as a poem, she invites the reader in and asks them to share with her in meaning-making. Now I want to return to the initial concept, national security. Close your eyes. Listen to the words. National security. What do you see? Generals in uniforms? Military fatigue-clad figures in the desert? The president, current or former, in the Oval Office surrounded by the Joint Chiefs? These are the images that are usually associated with national security. But let's look at the phrase national security as we would a poem. Are the images I just mentioned? those most frequently associated with quote-unquote national security, actually those that keep us secure? Well, on one level, yeah, I think they are. Those are the people, generals, members of the military, who are tasked with keeping the nation safe in its most dire moments, and it would be foolish to discount that. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I think there are other arenas of equal importance. We have a First Amendment that ensures the right to freedom of speech. That keeps the nation secure by protecting those of differing viewpoints. It allows for dissent. The First Amendment also protects a free press that, to use one of my favorite quotes from the play Inherit the Wind, can comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Journalists who investigate corruption domestically and internationally, who hold leaders accountable and publish pieces critical even of sitting presidents without suffering draconian governmental reprisals, they set an example for other nations on how to treat journalists. That helps our national security. Filmmakers whose visions of life are transmitted across the globe engendering goodwill towards the United States for being a nation that fosters and values such creativity and talent, they too are working for national security. The list goes on. Now the news for the last few weeks has been a topsy-turvy roller coaster on the foreign policy, international relations, national security front. The president has 
bombed without strategy, and lied with impunity. The actions themselves, sending missiles to strike a Syrian airfield, dropping the mother of all bombs on ISIS militants in Afghanistan, and sending ships, supposedly, in the direction of North Korea, look on the surface like the strong, decisive acts of a leader committed to muscular, hard-power American engagement on the world stage. A leader committed to a traditional vision of national security. But, I urge you, see the news with the eyes of a poetry reader. Look beyond the headlines. Airstrikes without strategic follow-through, made by a nation refusing to take civilians as refugees, are strikes that say, we care about the weapon used, chemicals, not the victims. Dropping the mother of all bombs on ISIS militants says, focus on the ordinance, not the mission. And claiming to send ships to North Korea when they are in fact not there at all says either we don't know where our ships are or you can't trust anything we say. All of this weakens our national security. A focus on soft power strengthens our national security, as does having the critical view of a poetry reader. I'm Jack Rossiter Munley, and this has been Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news, be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. Also, follow us on Twitter. The show is at close talking. My Twitter handle is at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at hot sauce boxed. You will then be up to date on all the cool stuff that Connor and I are working on between episodes, and you'll also be the first to know when new episodes go up. You can subscribe to Close Talking, the easiest way to get all new episodes as soon as they're posted, by subscribing on the iTunes Store, or you can find us on Stitcher or SoundCloud. If you have suggestions of poems you want us to discuss, topics for uh, poetic conversations, or if you have comments about this show or any of the shows that we've already posted, you can send them to us at close talking poetry at gmail.com.